Thank you very much. My great, my gratitude to the giant of Greece, in whose person the spirit of Plato and Aristotle has come alive again. And uh, okay, will not go on. Uh, uh, maybe you will be disappointed today because I will really stick to the topic, the wire. Now, I know I come a little bit late. Like when I told this to my friends, they told me, okay, what were you doing the last 10 years? Were you <laughs> sleeping or whatever? But still, I think precisely in view of the ongoing crisis, new emancipatory movements, we should return to the wire. First, a general remark. It is already a commonplace to say that what Hegel called Weltgeist, the spirit of the world, the focus of what goes on in popular culture, is, it seems that it's moving from cinema to TV series. The TV series are, to put it bluntly, the place where, in a creative sense, things are happening. I think that up to a point this is true, and I'm well aware of the emancipatory potentials of this move. For example, much more than in cinema, uh, Hollywood lost its power here. Hollywood made, uh, 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 encountered a great competitor in, as we all know, first the Latino-American telenovelas, Brazilian, Venezuelan, Mexican, and so on, which are an interesting phenomenon. I spoke when I visited Brazil with some people close to producers, and they told me they were the most surprised. How could, how could it have happened Then something that they perceived as limited to their own specific experience there becomes so crazily, madly popular in the most unexpected places? For example, I remember already some 30 years ago, in my own country, Slovenia, a Brazilian TV melodrama series called something like me, some, The Slave Isaura, or something Isaura. like that. Yeah, was an absolute myth. By this, I mean the following. The actress visited Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia, and rumors spread that she is in some central hotel. So, okay, the police blocked the street there of traffic. I mean, expecting some one, two hundred people. It was 70,000, 80,000 people. The cult was blocked. And, uh, but, but, and then, so it's Central Europe. I was also told Russia, Eastern Europe. It's an incredible phenomenon. And so I was always fascinated, but I'm not... I don't know enough to do the analysis by what are the grounds that some series catch up at some place and not somewhere else. For example, even before Isaura, or at that time, maybe at least you've heard about it, there, was, there were two of these American, rather boring, I think, series, first Dallas, then Denver. But for example, in my country, the whole of Yugoslavia at that point, uh, Denver was a triumph, but Dallas totally failed for mysterious reasons. On the other hand, I spoke at that time with a friend from Algiers who told me that there Dallas was a myth, and he gave me a very vulgar explanation. He said, it's a little bit richer, but it's like our society, big families, everybody plotting, betraying the other, and so on. 
Then another interesting thing, you know that this TV series where the only genuine popular success of East European communist countries. I don't know if you remember it, but even in the darkest time of Czech counter-revolution, the Husak years of the 70s, they invented a formula. And people usually don't know that they did it, which then was taken over in West Germany and all around. It was a TV series called Hospital on the Edge at the End of a City. And it was, I have a whole theory for which I don't have now, how it, this series fits perfectly the ideological constellation of the, after Prague Spring, Husak years, where the implicit ideological message of those in power after the Soviet crackdown of the Prague Spring to the people was no longer now we will build socialism, but was openly a kind of a hedonist, cynical message. It was, you can have, just leave politics alone, and you can have with your small pleasures, your daily life, your passions, your petty conflicts, and so on. And this is how the series worked. You know that there was later a West German series, which maybe some of you heard about. It became very popular also in Central Europe, called Schwarzwald Clinic. But what people don't know is that this one is copied from the Czech one. You know, so it's something that, why? Because the basic message of this one was wisdom. And this is what I will talk about. You know, this kind of a withdrawal into wisdom, in the sense of we all have our petty struggles, but ultimately <coughs> life turns around, everything goes on. You know, something like, which is why I hate the movie, Elton John's musical, isn't there a, this kind of a wisdom song in The Lion King? It's called The Cycle of Life, you know, like, it's a very cynic, basically it means we lions eat the poor animals, but what can you do, it's the cycle of life, and so on, no? And, no, and I claim, I claim that, but again, the surprise was how something which was specifically destined at, that, at the Czech population to enforce what they called normalization, like, enjoy your small daily life, stop dreaming about democratic socialism or whatever, how it proved to be a, a universal formula. Uh, so, uh, but nonetheless, I will now make a further thesis. In spite of all these creative or ideologically interesting, at least, developments, I don't think that this TV series forum has already found its inner structure. I think it's still looking for it. Because till now, we had three models. We had first this classical BBC model, miniseries based on big classical novels, all the Jane Austen stuff and so on, or more popular novels. Then we had this uh, detective story model where each story is a unity of its own, like Colombo and so on. I mean, you can watch anyone, you don't have to follow it. And then we did have this endless series, like Peyton Plains, Place, which just go on. But nonetheless, the way they were made, 
is, you know, this whole structure is always ended at the point of tension, and then you have to, uh, uh, to look at it again a week after. Is this function in this weekly rhythm? While an interesting phenomenon is going on today, this relatively good series, like the war, I don't think they function like this. I even read somewhere that much more people see them afterwards on DVD. That is to say that David Simon, the author of The Wire, said this openly. He said, forget about seasons and whatever. Basically, we did a 60 hours movie. And he said that the, the ideal way to see it is to, I don't know, to take drugs, not to fall asleep, and just <laughs> watch it three days or whatever. I think there is something in this. Furthermore, although I think Wire is not what people claim, you know, officially it's the greatest series of all times, but it is very interesting and high quality. The first thing that interests me is maybe the series is celebrated for a wrong reason. Usually it's proclaimed the high case of realism. Like, you know, no longer Hollywood ideas, but real miserable life of drug-addicted people in Baltimore, and so on, and so on. I think this is too simple to say. The first thing to say is that, yes, it is a realist series, but, but it's not object realism in the sense of the object, the topic, is presented in a realist way. It's more a subject realism, and I find this quite touching and unique. It's as if a community, and he, a community, in this case, the community of people of Baltimore, wanted to state their own collective self-representation. It's incredible. I read how the series was shot. It was really a kind of, almost like, I don't want to make this bad taste, megalomaniac uh, parallels, but since David Simon, the creator of The Wire, often emphasizes how he wanted to do a new form of the Greek tragedy. There is maybe this similarity with Greek tragedy, but just in this sense that also tragedy, Greek tragedy was, you know, a collective event of a Polish a city staging its own self-representation, experiencing its own being, its antagonisms, and so on. There is something of this here, and it's quite funny to, to look into how, uh, for example, how, you know this, how many people who play lawyers, drug addicts, policemen, even politicians there, were in real life, uh, Baltimore politicians, drug addicts, and so on. Even, uh, even the names contain often the names of the characters, ironic references to real-life person. For example, Stringer Bell, this kind of a business-oriented uh, uh, mobster, uh, is a composite of two real Bo Baltimore drug lords, Stringer Reed and Roland Bell, and so on. So it's, this I find quite unique today, because uh, officially, the party line, even in Marxism, is that in today's society, this is not possible. We live in an atomized society where the moment you present, you try to state this collective self-representation, you are close to fascism, as people even claim. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, I 
think that this self-representation of a community makes the series much more fundamentally realist. It's not realism in this naturalist sense of depicting the city the way it is. It's much more radically realist. It's a real community staging itself. It is, that would be my point. In this sense, it's precisely those details or passages which function in an ironic way, like uh, reminding you that this is a state series and so on, which I think are a marker or a sign of realism. I will now begin with my first clip. You must know it, I hope so. It's from the uh, number four of the first season, the famous uh, fuck scene. Why fuck scene? You know what happens there, no? The two good guys, uh, McNulty and Bank, uh, go to a room to investigate. There were some new clues in an old murder. And, well, you will see, I think it's about 50 times, uh, the, the only word spoken is fuck or its variations, like fuck, fucking fuck, oh fuck, fuck. But uh, I did something, I didn't have time to do this in my own country in Slovene, where I was able to count on the fact that many people didn't know the series. I dubbed it, uh, and it's incredible how people thought it is like this. Every fuck, I replaced it with what naively it stood, it stands for. You know, like, oh my God, there is a clue there. Oh, this hurts. How could we miss that? And it works perfectly. <laughs> so if there ever was poetry, this is poetry. You can imagine a perfectly normal dialogue, but with the use of only one word. And I think this has a, a series of overdetermined meanings. The first one is that it's a kind of a, it's also, it also has a commercial strategy. Because you know that HBO presents itself as, it's not, you know, that's publicity, it's not, it's not just TV, it's HBO. Like, we can do what other public channels cannot do. And precisely what you cannot do there is the F word. So it's, this is the first point. The second point, and it's a very nice reading of it, I got it in some way, is that, you know, till, till the fourth installment of the first season, it's pretty boring. It's just police the script. And it's as if the TV series is playing gentle game with you, the spectator. Like, okay, you were a good guy, you suffered for three weeks, now you deserve some fun, you know? Like, it's like, you know, like final seduction. Now you get it, no? Uh, the, uh, the, the last one is, I think, precisely as a joke, making it clear that it's staged, you know, making you aware that, no, it's not naive, naive realism. It's very important. Okay, so nonetheless, I couldn't resist it, of course. Just pray that it will work.
되네. represented with some traditional popular piece and you have let's say an original version and a later artistic version it's how measured by our standard ideological notions of authenticity it's usually the later official version which is much more pathetic authentic while the original truly popular, is much more comical, self-ironic, and so on and so on. I mean, uh, we, we can go, again, I don't have time to, but let's take Antigone, my God. We, no, don't be afraid, those who know me. I will not uh, repeat again the three versions of Antigone or not. That, something different. That how the story that we know is, as you may be, know, if you know, Greek mythology, it's a secondary elaborated version of the original myth of Antigone, which is much more funny. If I were to present to you the real original Antigone story and Sophocles, you would have said, ah, Sophocles is the authentic and the other one is some kind of a later postmodern ironic version. Because you know what happens in, in the uh, original myth? Antigone escapes with Haimon. They screw, they have a child who comes 20 years later to revenge the father, another melodrama, falls in love, and so on and so on. So this is a, an important lesson that, again, uh, 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 we should drop this pseudo-Hegelian ideology of you have an authentic, pure, whatever, minimal beginning, and then it gets complex, ironic, and so on. No, irony, self-irony, and so on is at the beginning. Precisely, this kind of a pathetic, direct mythic identification comes afterwards. I mean, I know listening, I did sometimes had the misfortune of listening to some popular people's theater pieces. It's incredible how self-ironic they are all the time making fun of themselves and so on. Okay, so let's go on. So 
again, with what kind of realism then are we dealing here? What is Wire about? It's clear. The title refers to, to put it simply, to class struggle. I quote David Simon, the title refers to an almost imaginary but unviolate boundary between the two Americas, between those who participate in the American dream and those left behind. I cannot notice here the ironic reference to another, uh, to another popular series of movies, TV movies, and which is the worst. You know who are these two great guys, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. They are the Christian fundamentalist writers who wrote one of the most popular Christian series of novels called Left Behind. You know, it starts, I read the first one, then I almost killed myself. It starts <laughs> on a plane where one 10% of passengers all of a sudden disappear. And then the main pilot, who is having an affair with the stewardess, gets it that it's the time of, you know, God before Armageddon takes to himself the... And the, the novel is so incredibly, the series, primitive. Like, you know who is the bad guy? This is one of the reasons I still moderately support European Union. The bad guy is European Union. The thesis of the theory is that there is a world crisis and United States and Israel are threatened by Arab terrorists, but then some American agents discover that Arab terrorists are just instruments, that it's European Union which is controlling everything, uh, trying to destroy United States and all the stuff and so on and so on, and the new dictator. This is what happens. United Nations take over on behalf of European Union, and they propose to move the seat of United Nations to, for, to, to fulfill the biblical prophecy from New York to Babylon. You know, the core of Babylon and so on. And I love this. The, the new leader, reference to Romania, is called Nicolae Carpatia, like Ceausescu and so on. It's madness. But OK, let's go on. Uh, so the first thing to note is that it's really a series, simply a series about class struggle, about two or even more social spaces which, although they are part of the same totality, culturally simply don't communicate with each other. I quote here from Frederick Jameson's nice uh, essay on the wire, so here in absolute geographic proximity, two whole cultures exist without contact and without interaction, even without any knowledge of each other, like Harlem and the rest of Manhattan, like the West Bank and the Israeli cities that once part of it are now still a few miles away. And this is our situation more and more. Let me make a Marxist confession to you in the sense that where I betrayed my Marxism. For the new year, I was with my son in, in Dubai, in an expensive hotel. I will not tell you the name. It was just that it looks like a sale from the <laughs> I will not. Yes, I did a crazy thing. But I did my Marxist duty. 
I immediately established contact there with the cleaning person. It wasn't even a lady. It was so that you will not accuse me of sexual harassment. It was a man <laughs> and with a Pakistani taxi driver. And they gave me, they simply taught me to see what you see and what you don't see. You know, all the madness. Like I noticed that in all my time there, I did not meet officially not even one citizen of Dubai. All you meet are European immigrants, uh, sorry, workers for higher posts, then mid-level workers from Egypt, Philippines, and so on, and then the lowest ones from Indonesia, uh, India, Pakistan, Nepal. For a strange reason, and I cannot guess why, I was told that those who do the most dangerous works, building those high, uh, uh, high towers and falling down like flies, of course, are from Nepal. I don't know why. My primitive idea is that they thought that they are used to high altitude, you know, like Himalaya. They can do it. It's, and it, it. What fascinated me is how, if you don't know, you really are not even aware of this. For example, that the only way to meet citizens of Dubai is maybe in shopping malls, you recognize them, but never, you know, it will never be the one, for example, hotel, no person in hotel was a citizen of Dubai. And again, it's strictly classified. Those below you, they're literally invisible, like they don't even live in the city, they live in some, usually they call it industrial city, some totally secluded part, and so on, and all the madness of it. So again, what fascinates me is this, you know they are there, but you don't see them. This total invisibility. I just hope that this will also bring some, well, emancipatory revolutionary change, because can you imagine what? They must be terribly afraid, those in power, full citizens. How totally dependent they are on the functioning of this anonymous machinery. A strike, they cannot even do what I read when you had this big general strike. When was it? 24 or 27 here in the UK. I remember how for patriotic reasons, middle and upper middle class, even rich kids were mobilized, you know, uh, 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 cleaning the streets or whatever to keep the state functioning. They cannot do this there. I mean, if those invisible workers don't work, everything comes to a standstill. We can go further here. I think that uh, it's even that these different cultures, basically there are more than two, but we can simplify two, are more and more approaching, even I would say, a different ontology, a different way to relate to reality. We, or those of us who are at least more or less in this upper level, we worry, but of course, in our own hypocritical way of the lifestyle ecology, you know, where you recycle one bottle and you think you did something for Mother Earth and so on. We are ecologically oriented. We are hedonists, but strictly... Uh, how should I call it, moderate, rational hedonists, no? We have sex, but because we read that, you know, sex is good for blood circulation, <laughs> it's, better, it's better than two-hour 
jogging and so on, you don't have time and so on. It's our kind of a carefully screened un uh, uh, universe where <coughs> you can see this even with names. For example, it's only in this our secluded universe that someone can claim that waterboarding border, bor is not torture. An American friend of mine, and a theologist, but very much leftist theologist, told me something wonderfully simple. He told me, but how can you even claim that boarding is not torture? Why then are they using it to wash the prisoners or what? I mean, isn't it? Just think about the situation. Somebody is there who you think at least that he knows something you want to no, and you know that he absolutely doesn't want to tell you this. And then you do something to him, and in a couple of minutes he tells you. Isn't this by definition torture? Why, why would he tell you this? I mean, it's totally irrational not to call it torture. Of course it's torture, which is why it works. Because they must be terribly terrified or whatever to tell you. Uh, so. Uh, what I'm, again, uh, uh, tempted to say is that things are developing even further here. I, I think that uh, not only is class struggle not out, but what I suspect is that with new biogenetic technologies and so on, we are even approaching a situation where, quite seriously, it will not just be the poor and the rich having, enjoying different objects and so on, but that they will gradually develop literally into different races. For example, when I visited Shanghai, I, I uh, discovered there that they have in the suburb of Shanghai already, where well, why not? I don't play the Chinese, you are a man, whatever, but they have uh, many hospitals specialized for rich Western patients where if the wife is pregnant, you go there and you know, you do all the biogenetic stuff. They even already try to, uh, try to do some genetic changes and so on. And I think this will, I think that biogenetics, the way it develops, I mean, I'm really afraid of it. Not because I think humans have an immortal soul, etc., but precisely because humans don't have an immortal soul, it can really affect us. That is to say, I really think that there will be one biogenetics for the rich, how to perfect your child and so on, and there will be another biogenetics, human biogenetics for the poor. You know, how to make them less aggressive or whatever. I mean, don't, don't, I mean, again, to repeat my old joke, it's not a joke, sorry, if I already used it here, when I was also in China, I met a guy from their Academy of Sciences, Biogenetics, and he showed me the program of their Biogenetic Institute. And he says openly, the goal of Biogenetics in People's Republic of China is to regulate uh, physical and mental welfare of the Chinese people. So we are approaching this. But again, crucial is the radical distinction. And this is what, again, WIRE is about. I quote again David uh, Simon, we pretend to a war against narcotics, but in truth, we are simply brutalizing and dehumanizing an urban underclass that we no longer need as a labor supply. 
The Wire was not a story about America. It's about the America that got left behind. The drug war is war on the underclass now. That's all it is. It has no other meaning. End of quote. So, uh, again, uh, with this, I tend to... Uh, with this, I tend to agree, and this is also why I claim, without class reference, you cannot understand a strange phenomenon without class distinction. It happened to me, let me tell you another story, maybe you know it, when I was a year ago with my Slovene friends in LA, at Irvine, staying there, no, just at a dinner party with a friend, my Slovene friend, Mladen Dolar, his name I can tell, not the other guy, was, uh, is a heavy smoker. So he asked towards the end of the, if he can take, uh, uh, get a smoke. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know. I shouldn't do it in the house. So he offered to step out onto the big garden. And the owner, professor, our good friend, otherwise left this Placanian, whatever you want, of course, <laughs> said, no, absolutely not. There also you can pollute the house through the wind, whatever. Then Mladen, my friend, said, OK, I understand it. Can I step out onto the street and walk? <laughs> uh, uh, the answer was no, because this may give wrong impression to our neighbors. We would not be, so no. Okay, then Vlad and Dolar said, okay, what can I do? Okay, no. But then immediately after this, the party came at an end and the host distributed drugs to us. <laughs> so I find this, like, why smoking is so mythically stigmatized? Like, just ask yourself a question and to avoid a misunderstanding. I don't smoke and I'm totally for the punishment of, uh, of, of uh, tobacco. Uh, tobacco uh, uh, companies and so on. But nonetheless, I find it system symptomatic how, although drugs are also stigmatized, or war against drugs and so on, this stigmatization, did you notice how it works in a totally different way at the private level? We may be against drugs, but it's considered not me. Don't be afraid. I'm the only person that I know who did not even once in his life uh, taste not even marijuana. And I'm not praising me here. It's simply my Stalinist <laughs> paranoia. My idea is enemies always waiting to attack you. You take drugs, <laughs> you, you lose your attention, you become a giant, the enemy can attack. It's strictly paranoia, you know. But nonetheless, isn't this strange, Cow? Although we know that, if anything, drugs are nonetheless more dangerous. How? You can take drug privately. It's part of normal upper-middle-class situation. While, just ask yourself, who smokes today in Hollywood? Where are the good old days when Lorin Bacall, to seduce Humphrey Bogart, says, can I get a light from you? No, today, basically, the only Clear cases who regularly smoke, I noticed, are maybe some of your friends, Oscar, like some uh, Latino drug smugglers and <laughs> terrorists, terrorists who are afraid before, just before they had to blow themselves up to calm themselves down, they, they, they take a cigarette or whatever. I think, again, it's pure, it's pure class distinction, this, uh, this difference. So let me go on. Uh, uh, this bleak picture provides the background for Simon's 
David Simon's fatalistic worldview. This is why he says that the wire is a Greek tragedy. And he's not even very original here. If you are a little bit of a Marxist, you must know that, you must remember that Marx already said this. He says that for ancient Greeks, they had Mount Olympus, they had gods, blah, blah. Today, our Greek gods are market forces and so on. The same irrational faith and so on and so on. Now, here we encounter one ambiguity of the wire, which allows a liberal appropriation, reappropriation, <laughs> even against the explicit intention of the creators, David Simon and so on. Namely, some radical liberals, libertarians in the United States, but in the right-wing sense, praised wire claiming that not the true target is not capitalism, free market, but uh, but the but the the inefficient state bureaucracy, you know how bureaucracy sabotages itself, doesn't work properly, and so on. So they even tried to read the wire as a kind of a right-wing liberal plea how to fight the war on drugs. Don't play the old democratic party game of big state institutions. State bureaucratic institutions are by definition inefficient because their main goal is to reproduce themselves, not to solve the problem, and so on and so on. Of course, there is a truth in it. For example, you know, maybe the greatest British movie of all times for me, uh, uh, Brazil, Terry Gillian. Remember, Towards the beginning of the film, that wonderful scene when in the guys played by Jonathan Price, the hero, apartment, some, I don't know, electricity or leaking, something. So he calls to state approved plumberers or whatever. And they come and they do their usual bureaucratic job. They don't even look at the pipes. They just fill out many forums and say, maybe at some point you will hear from us, whatever. Then immediately afterwards, in a small cameo appearance, Robert De Niro character comes and presents himself as the ultimate subversive. He says, what? He says, I'm here really quickly just to repair. You know, he just wants to really solve the problem. With this experience is the ultimate subversion because this is the cause of all the troubles for the hero. Because then authorities somehow learn this and come back and arrest him, like, how could you get that guy simply to solve the problem and so on and so on? So I, I, I know this and I know that this is also uh, the tragedy of, uh, 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 of, uh, for, of bureaucracy because for bureaucracy, the ultimate prohibition, bureaucracy is made in its irrationality to reproduce the problem, the greatest sin you can do from the bureaucratic standpoint is simply to solve the problem, of course, no? Uh, uh, so, uh, but I claim nonetheless that it is anti-capitalist series up to a point, the wire. You know why? Because these liberal guys who want to appropriate the wire don't get something of which David Simon is aware. That uh, it is true, bureaucracy works like that. It, its main goal is to reproduce itself, not to. So and then you have all these wonderful, you have all these wonderful problems. Even I was told in today's Russia, by my 
friends who some of them were even, I'm no longer their friend, pro-Putin. They admitted to me how difficult it is. For example, one of them was robbed, no, on the street and went to the police. And then they told him, sorry, we cannot start the procedure. Why? Because they told him, because we had a plan and according to our plan, in this year, the number of robberies, violent robberies, should diminish for 5%. If we take your case, it would ruin our statistics and so on and so on. No? And this is one side. The other side, the Stalinist one, which is also alive, is that, on the other hand, they also get a quota how many crimes they should solve. So then sometimes they had to invent crimes to hire the statistic of, I mean, we know all this, but in some nice passage, David Simon says something intelligent. He says, but, but doesn't capitalism in general work precisely the market capitalism in exactly the same way. It appears that it is selling you products to satisfy you. But no, it is selling you products which guarantee that you will again need a product and so on and so on. You know, it's exactly in the same way as bureaucracy. Products are not made to satisfy you. Your satisfaction is manipulated so that more products will be reproduced and so on and so on. Uh, now, back to this Greek idea of uh, Greek tragedy. I think there is something in it. Now, I will do something crazy. I propose to you to classify wire, to put wire into the same series as maybe they are, in an imaginary ideological way, part of the same symptom, uh, namely two movies which are very interesting ideologically, not that they are very good, in which, uh, how to put it, ancient gods are treated as if they are here today among us. The first one, I've seen it about, I don't know how often, maybe six, seven times because of my son, uh, 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 Percy Jackson, Theft of Fire. You know what's the idea? The idea is that there is conflict among the gods and Perseus, is expelled and lives as an ordinary guy in a small American city and so on and so on. And then you have, of course, the other, the Nordic one, Thor, where again, Thor has a struggle with Anthony Hopkins, that is to say Odin, if you don't know Bothan. And it's, but I like this idea of uh, American provincial everyday life and gods walking there. Maybe, maybe these movies are aware I mean, the idea is very nice one. It's precisely that the Greek faith still, still rules, still uh, rules here. Uh, 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 so again, uh, another good thing about wire is that it doesn't just make this general point. Here things come, become interesting now. It doesn't just make this general point about Oh, we are all victims, fate of capital. Uh, sorry, victims of this new form of fate, which is market capitalism. The fifth, five seasons proceed in a very nice, systematic way, as if a kind of a complex reasoning of what to do. The first season presents the conflict: drug dealers versus police. The second season steps back to the ultimate cause of this. It focuses on the disappearance of the working class. Uh, you know that Sobotka trade union guy in Baltimore uh, Harbor. The third season 
season three, uh, deals with police strategies to resolve the problem. It has maybe the most touching, wonderful, I will talk about it later, episode on so-called Hamsterdam as a strategy. You will maybe see what I mean. Season four asks the question why education doesn't help. You know, the usual liberal answer, we need more education and so on. And season five focuses on the role of the media. Why don't we know how things stand? Uh, so at this level, I think this is the first real greatness of The Wire, is that it does not limit itself simply to harsh reality. It <coughs> presents stages, different utopian dreams as part of this reality. And it's done in a beautiful, systematic way. For example, season two, Frank Sobot focused on Frank Sobotka, a worker in the harbor, trade union organizer, who in the first approach, he may appear a typical corrupted trade unionist. He makes a deal with drug distributors that through his port, drugs are delivered, and so on and so on. But then you, soon you get to see that he is a very tragic, honest person. He has still this old Roosevelt welfare state dream of, you know, honest capitalism, workers organized, make a deal, welfare state, and so on. He sees the new economy as ruining this. I mean, uh, uh, Baltimore Harbor, Harbor is half abandoned, and so on. And in his desperate strategy, getting the money, profiting for drugs, is for, for him strictly a way to revitalize the port to get the money, to reorganize the trade unions. It's a very tragic dream to bring this uh, relatively prosperous Roosevelt welfare state America back to life. Of course, it miserably fails. Then, also in season two, D'Angelo, one of the younger uh, guys, black guys, uh, uh, involved in drug trading and speaking about races. This is, I think, what is for me also one of the great things about The Wire. It is mostly about the blacks, but this becomes irrelevant in a good sense. It's no longer this white attitude of, you know, oh, poor blacks there, whatever. It is simply by blacks about the blacks. It lacks this false liberal fascination with poor stuff, it's a different role. So this D'Angelo, he decides to turn state's witness, he is kind of a, tormented by ethical problems, and almost decides already to denounce his family, his uncle, who is uh, uh, the gang boss, and then who comes? His mother, and convinces him not to collaborate with the police, referring to what? To family values, of course. It's the big family dream, we should stick together. So you see, you have here another utopian dream, happy big family helping each other and so on and so on. In season three, maybe the most beautiful utopia, Major Colvin, another honest black policeman, decides to do something which seems quite obvious. He knows this is not a long-term solution, but in immediate terms, it works wonderfully. He constitutes so-called Amsterdam. Of course, it's a reference to Amsterdam, where, as you know, 
in the central part, uh, you can buy simply in cafeterias uh, soft drugs, no? It's even I didn't get it when somebody drew my attention to, if it says coffee shop, it means drugs. If it says cafeteria, it means uh, just coffee, no? Because a friend of mine made this. He went to a cafeteria and said, just some, you know. Okay? And they told, no, no, wrong place. Go to coffee shop for, for this, no? But, you know, uh, so he that this does this. And I think this is a wonderful moderate ethical act. He makes a deal with the drug dealers, gangster, telling them, look, this part of the city, a couple of blocks, you will have the whole freedom to do whatever you want with drugs. We will not even control you. Even uh, uh, people will be free to come there. You can do just, of course, don't do the killing. Do drug dealing in whatever way you want. And, but don't do anything, don't even think about outside these limits. And it worked wonderfully. There is much less even drug violence, much less violence. All parts of the city around start to flourish and so on. But then, of course, the usual thing, it doesn't look good for publicity, no? And the mayor decides to crack it. But it's a beautiful utopia, I think, no? <laughs> and incidentally, you know that it's a mistake of the movie makers, of the TV series makers, to call it Amsterdam. When I was recently in Zurich, uh, Switzerland, you know, the evil Nazi bankers and so on, and they told me that, no, the city of Zurich was the first to do this back in the 1980s. There is a, a square a little bit north, I think, from the Hauptbahnhof, from the main train station, where they did legalize it. But it didn't quite work. But up to a point, it did work. Okay, so let's go further. Then there is, I hope, then there is uh, in season three, another wonderful utopian moment uh, uh, of friendship. Like, you know, the way it's a scene of two gangsters, Avon Barsdale, the gang boss, and Stringer Bell, his executor, lieutenant, who is kind of a modern, business-oriented gangster. It's a very touchy scene, and I think it's totally wrong to read it as a hypocrisy. They already betrayed each other. The one betrayed the other to the police, the other uh, ordered the murder of the first one. It's already done. But nonetheless, they decide to have a last supper drink together. And how they talk about good old times, we may do this, and so on. It's totally wrong, I claim, to read it as hypocrisy. It's, although they knew, and they knew about the other, that they already, it's this kind of a utopian longing of what it might have been. I hope it will function. It's a shorter scene than the other way, than the other one. Yeah, 
had anything to do with that Clay Davis bullshit, man. I'm not to cut his money, little faggot. Tell y'all me. Again, what I like in this scene is that you got it. They both know they already betrayed each other. And this is why even more the dream is authentic, the dream of friendship. Then you have other, you have, again, the utopian dream, the technocratic dream, and so on, and so on. Uh, so uh, now things get even more complex, I claim, because here I slightly disagree with Fred Jensen, who likes to play the game of beyond good and evil, claiming that every ethical critique of capitalism is naive, wrong, all radical thought has to move in the dimension again, beyond good and evil. Uh, he even talks about outmoded ethical binary of good and evil, and so on and so on. But I, I don't agree with this. I think that what the TV series, what The Wire struggles with is something much more interesting. And I think even generally as to our ethical position, I never liked this idea which appears so radical, you know, beyond good, of e good and evil in the sense that every notion of good that we have is already within the horizon of existing ideology and so on and so on. It's so, I think... Fred Jensen got it here exactly in the wrong way. He mocks good and evil, but at the same time, he likes, he sees a genuine emancipatory potential in this kind of utopian dreams. You know, like, even if the guys are bad, there is an authentic utopian dimension. I'm tempted to, to see things exactly in the opposite way. That is to say, the tragedy of these utopian dimensions, family, friendship, whatever, is that precisely they are fully part of the system, making the system function, but that what the wire really tries to do at its most radical is 
to answer this question in a situation like that of Baltimore? How can, it's a very naive question. I think there is absolutely no reason to make fun of it. Can we do anything? What can we do to resist? What are the modes of activity? And uh, uh, here, I think that uh, uh, it should be read, the series, as a kind of a, a, a phenomenology, a typology even, of what can you do to be minimally ethical. And you have, for example, McNulty, the drunken, honest policeman who just fights his way, fails at the end. You have his boss who is, tries to be honest in a different way. They all end tragically, but nonetheless. And I think this is quite an honest typology, of course, with this pessimist message that uh, in order to really do something good, you have in some way to break the law. For example, the most beautiful example, very touching, is here that of McNulty, the main character. You know, if you saw it, what he does in the last season. He gets it, as Fred Jensen emphasizes it, that in today's media, nobody really cares about uh, drug dealers, gangsters. There are two types of crime which makes big headlines. No, it's uh, serial killers and terrorists. This is where it is in. So. McNulty wants a new drug lord who established himself under uh, police control, listening devices, and so on. He cannot get the money. So he does something which I found totally ethical and brilliant. He, uh, he, there is a body found of an old drunk man, not even a crime. He, McNulty, plants some false leads so that this appears as the work of a serial killer. You know, and then there is another body found, and he plants some clues, and then he goes to the press. Serial killer in Baltimore City, of course. He immediately gets all the money, you know, that he used for that. But that's then his downfall. Police discovers his fire at the end. Uh, so another lesson here. This one was put very nicely by Jameson. Here I agree with him, namely that the other. Uh, message of the film. Ah, uh, and that, uh, sorry, just another thing. There is then, uh, the, sorry, the other message of the film is that the only way to do something good in today's society, the only way to fight the dark gang is to establish a conspiracy, a good gang, illegal conspiratory group. And I think this is maybe almost, I would say, the most, this is, and I'm I don't think Jameson even notices it enough he should have. This is, for me, the most beautiful, if you see it, poetic moment of The Wire. You will show it. You know what I will do now? This is not so important what happens. I will just show to you the clip. That's it. Yeah. Uh, the group organized, you know, the police acknowledges the need to fight drugs, but they want to keep it aside. So they give to the anti-drug group a small, dirty room in the basement, half abandoned with all the sounds. And this is, for me, 
the genuine communist dream of the series. It's the same, I think it's this uh, new version of, you know, those wonderful, I really see in them a proto-model of a communist society, even in Charles Dickens, you know, those crazy eccentric houses like in an abandoned cheap where, or Frank Capra, you know, what's that film, you can't get it, what you want, that crazy apartment, you have a crazy ballerina, a Russian madman, a guy who does explosions and so on. This kind of a communism, not as did Soviet, oh, we are all like machines, but communism as a... Jenford has very, some very nice view of it, where he says communism should be as a kind of a free madhouse, you know, a community of eccentric. Some, a guy thinks he's Napoleon, the other guy wants to kill us, so, and we somehow, men, and this, you, you have a lesbian woman, you have that guy who is just making small wooden toys and so on. You have this kind of a Dickensian, I think it works, one, or let me stop again. Yeah. You have this Dickensian group of eccentrics, which of course has to operate illegally with regard to the, to the, with regard to the institution itself. Here you have, as Jensen points out, some wonderful characters, like the guy you saw clipping some wood. He's Lester Freeman, he's a policeman who lost, who was sidetracked because of his honesty, and he is as Jameson notices, the type of the intellectual threatened by this Bologna reform, we need knowledge which can be useful. This kind of a totally useful making toys and so on, a lot of unnecessary knowledge, but he's the guy who solves things with his ideas. This kind of a intellectual, in the best sense of the term, uh, uh, ah, then there is another person which is, uh, which is uh, uh, absolutely crucial. Uh, 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 the person of uh, the person of Omar. You know, which even that goes to his honor, nonetheless. Uh, Obama, the guy, the boss, <laughs> said that this is his favorite character. He's the paradox. He's the only. Who, guy who really efficiently fights drug crime. And what is he? He's a serial murderer systematically killing bad drug dealers as an ethical task. And it's something like, uh, did you see? I didn't, but I read about it. The TV series uh, 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 Dexter. You know, it's about a Policeman, how did he become what he is? His stepfather discovers that it is his genes to kill. And he says, okay, then at least do the policeman's job and kill the right people so that you can do your killing and so on, something like that. I think that, that in this sense, uh, this is again, the beautiful paradox of the wire, how all these eccentric types up to a honest, absolutely honest, the only person in the whole wire who is rigidly honest is Omar, the ultimate honest serial killer, and so on and so on. So then, uh, now we nonetheless uh, encounter a problem here. Okay, we have, this is the constellation of the wire. Again, all these utopian dreams, these different types of honesty, which all of them fail, more or less, uh, 
there is nonetheless, I claim, a limit with regard to this Greek tragedy model. The limit is that Greek, Greek, that the wire is much more pessimist. Okay, you have a tragedy in Greek tragedy. You try to combat faith, you cannot, you fail. But nonetheless, something happens in Greek tragedy that your failure is the great cathartic purification, whatever. And as good uh, analysts noted, here wire is in a way more tragic than Greek tragedy. Because faith is not personalized like Zeus and so on, but it's anonymous in different machinery. You don't get this cathartic moment of purification. You lose, not in the sense that you make a compromise or what, but in the sense that you heroically stand up and then you see simply indifferent. Things go on and so on and so on. You know, even it's not a question of I want to be heroic, but I break down because of the pressure of society, whatever. Is that even if I don't break down, I afterwards discover that A, my heroic act was functionally exploited for the better functioning of power, or B, it's simply ignored, uh, indifferent, and so on and so on. Here, I think it is also wrong to celebrate, as some people are doing, the Dickens aspect of the wire. Like, it's fashionable to say what the wire is Dickens, Charles Dickens, you know. Charles Dickens nonetheless has a series of, let's call it, uh, uh, this melodramatic moment, like confrontation of good and evil, or, you know, this uh, secret rescuer benefactor who intervenes in the last minute, all this miserably fails in, in uh, all this miserably fails in the wire. Why? Because, again, here I think we slowly encounter, maybe, the limit of the series. Because the fate is market, anonymous, irrational market. The real, the desert of the real is the abstract movement of the capital. And uh, now the problem is, who is then the culprit? Jameson said the culprit is, of course, the system as such. It's a who done it where. The answer is not this or that guy, but all of them. You have already one example of this in classical detective novel, you know, Agatha Christie, murder of the, on the Orient Express, where the culprits are all, the entire, but because we are in the classical bourgeois universe, the necessary consequence of this is that if all are murderers, then the victim should be the really bad guy. So at the end, as you know, the murder is justified and Hercule Poirot doesn't even report it. Here, how to do it? Here, I think, we get the ultimate limitation of the ultimate uh, uh, limitation of the wire. It, uh, the problem is how to stage in narrative fiction this faith, the modern faith, capital as an abstract power. I claim, for reasons we don't have time to go now in detail, that uh, we, and this was what is was clear to authors like Brecht and Chaplin. When we are dealing with modern horror, totalitarian, capital, capitalist, and so on, psychological realism no longer works. 
you can, and for me, if there is again a limit of to the wires, is that it, it remains too much embedded in traditional psychological realism. What do I mean by this? Did you notice how, in order, how all psychological realist movies or whatever on Hitler somehow fail? Like, it's always then, you know, this was all the trouble of uh, Lars von Trier, you know, when he made that remark uh, at Cannes Festival press conference, but I can sympathize with Hitler there. You know what's the ultimate irony? That he was there quoting Wittgenstein. I have a book of memoirs on Wittgenstein where one of his pupils reports that Wittgenstein uh, put a note in his diary in the spring of April, March of 45, saying, okay, Hitler is horrible, but I think I understand him now. How horrible he must feel now, alone in the bunker there, everything. <laughs> so there is something wrong with it. What? Why? I think that precisely, and already Hannah Arendt saw this, what characterizes modern abstract capitalism is a radical gap between, let's call them objective social processes and subjective psychological self-experience. This is her big point, for example, now about Eichmann, you know, that the banality of evil. Horrible things were being done. It is wrong to think you will find a subject who, in the first person, is the agent of this horror or even is aware of what he's doing, you must have a gap. If you play the game off, let's try to understand it, how Hitler or whoever was able to do it. You do it wrong. You are lost. You are lost. You precisely humanize the crime too much. Which is why uh, I think that those who try to represent Hitler as a, or Nazism or other horrors as a staff of comedy, you know, like Brecht in his Arturo Ui or Chaplin in Great Dictator, are paradoxically much closer to the truth. You cannot do a totalitarian or even abstract capitalist society where you still stick to their psychological, to their psychological realist uh, model. Uh, now you will say, but why not? Isn't it part of a social totality? also our self-experience. Certain things are happening. Which, no, you know why not? Because if you portray society the way it is today in psychological realist way, you cover up the radical gap that separates, let's say, social objectivity from subjective self-experience. Precisely where you think that you show it all, you already formally uh, mystify the situation. So again, where do we see this limitation of wire? Let me begin with where the wire comes nonetheless closest to this authentic modern tragic vision. I will now show you the very first famous three minutes first scene where the beginning of the series where McNulty and a black boy who informs him talk about the body found there and uh, in front, and you will see it, in a way, it effectively condenses the entire series. Let's, uh, uh. 
boy's name is what? Snot. Call the guy Snot? Snot Boogie. Yeah. Snot Boogie. You like the name? What? Snot Boogie. This kid who's bumming away with the trouble of Kristen, Omar, Isaiah Betts. You know, he forgets his jacket. So his nose starts running and some asshole, instead of giving him a Tinex, he calls him Snot. So he's Snot forever. Doesn't seem fair. Life just beat him, I guess. So, who shot Snot? I ain't going to no court. famous beginning is that precisely you have a victim, it's not a tragic victim. You even don't know the name. Victim is meaningless. But uh, so this would be the first point. The second point is, you got it, why uh, he was killed. This strange ethical insistence. You are beaten, but you go on robbing the robbers and so on and so on. Uh, uh, now, uh, so again, now comes my, just to conclude my crucial point. We have then all these different modes of resistance. We have McNulty who tries to do something through a little bit of cheating. We have Omar, the good killer. We have Snap who was stealing money from drug dealers after their, uh, their, 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 their games every Friday and so on and so on, got beaten but insisted. Uh, I think that the uh, crucial question to be approached here is the following one. It is easy to show how, uh, how 
in Michel Foucauldian way, and it's interesting how most of the readings of the wire are under the influence of Foucault's discipline and punish, you know, repeating endlessly this point of how crime and police prosecution of crime regenerate, reproduce each other, are part of the same circle, and so on and so on. I get this point. I totally agree. Uh, how I, I even experienced it in my own, this inconsistency of the law, how you have to generate what you are trying to oppress. For example, a funny story from my own youth when I was serving the army. Uh, we had once, twice a week in the morning political education, where once the officer, chief of my battalion, was teaching us this, you know, this international rules of war. For example, did you know that it's uh, prohibited to shoot on parachuters before they touch the ground? We, we all learn this, blah, blah. Then, as if by some divine grace to make the point, the next hour, we were doing some lessons in shooting. The same officer was teaching us. And on that day, the same day, the lesson was how to shoot a parachute, no? And uh, it was, you know, you know the trick, maybe. That's how you have to take into account uh, how quickly the body is going down. And there is a primitive system. If you make a judgment through your fingers, how much lower you should aim at, no? And then, total idiot as I am, I asked him a question, no? <laughs> like, like, comrade officer, but isn't there... Like, how do you bring this together with what you were telling us uh, one hour before, no? And I got what I deserved. He looked at me and told me, aren't you an intellectual? How can you be so utterly stupid? Don't you get it or what? And so on and so on. Okay, I got it. I know this. But the problem is this one. Here is, for me, the limit of the wire. Okay, this type of codependence between Police bureaucratic work and crime, how, you know, they need each other, blah, blah, blah. They generate each other. I got this Michel Foucault lesson. But does the same hold for resistance? What about all these subversive acts, like what uh, McNulty is doing, what Omar is doing? You know, these honest people trying to change. Are they also, in the same way, resistance, which is in advance co-opted, which functions as the part of the system? And I claim that here the series remains totally ambiguous. And it's kind of an objective social limitation. First, here, David Simon himself is ambiguous. Because on the one hand, his official party, is, party line is the Greek tragic line. No? Like, the system always wins. It's, we cannot really... All this faith wins through our very attempt to win over it. So, the conclusion from this would have been, which is quite sympathetic for me, that maybe the way to stop the system is not to resist it in the wrong way, but to let it function and make it sure that in this way it will destroy itself. It would have worked. For example, a, an example from Cuba. I read some 10 years ago 
that Castro got to know, how you call this, I don't know, that system of tracking that most of the taxis have, or, yeah, you, you, or whatever, you know where, you know where, that Castro said one, because, you know, in Cuba there was a big problem of trucks, trucks owned by state being used for smuggling, even in the of, uh, distributing uh, black market goods and so on. So Castro's idea was, it's not so expensive, let's, 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 uh, let's give to each state-owned truck this machine and some controller can know at every point where they are and so on and so on. But, you know, all I can say is that luckily for Castro and his system, this doesn't work. Because an elementary economic analysis would have told you that, like, at that point, now it's maybe in worse, uh, between 30 and 40% of food in Cuba was distributed in this black market way. Which means that if this fight against corruption were to succeed, it would have meant, I don't know, instant breakdown, revolution or whatever. This was the great tragedy of all communist systems, that, that uh, precisely the phenomenon they were fighting, black market and so on, was what effectively enabled the system to function. Look at the Soviet Union. All good books about Soviet economy under Brezhnev tell you this. Like 30%, practically the majority of, of, of vegetables and so on were from black market uh, farmers and so on and so on. So, uh, so then if you are cynical, you should say uh, that precisely those who think that they are undermining the system, we do it illegally, black marketing, and so on and so on. They are keeping the system alive. So now we come to this ambiguity that I want to confront. It is easy to withdraw, when you have this insight, to withdraw into what I'm tempted to call the position of the absolute. It's nothing mystical. Simply, you know, let's say you are fighting struggles against corruption, and so on and so on. But then you withdraw into what I already called the Lion King position, no? But isn't all of it one crazy circle where our very fighting against the system makes the system function? It's all a big circle, like acquire a wise distance. And so I think David Simon himself, on the one hand, is tempted by this pessimist position. At the same time, he, he is not a Marxist. He openly says at some public confrontation, I have it on DVD, you are not looking at a Marxist here. No? And then obviously he is asked, okay, fuck you, what we are looking at. No? And he says a modest Keynesian. No? Like, uh, it's kind of a, he says openly, capitalism is the only game in town. It's the most productive still. What we should, and he gives them the usual Keynesian social democratic stuff. More social control, more regulation, and so on and so on. So uh, is this the only option? Now, I would like to show you the last clip, finale. And let's just conclude, uh, which is precisely, I claim, this withdrawal into the position of the absolute. Nothing. Ah, okay. It will be just McNulty with the friend. It's kind of a reflexive moment at the end. 
he will stop at the bridge or whatever, seeing the harbor, half abandoned harbor. You know, because he was already fired, he had to retire. And then it will be a kind of a condensed reflection of the state of Baltimore, all different scenes, and so on. This is the Lion King moment of, you know, <laughs> circle of life goes on. <laughs> like drug dealing still going on.
Okay. So I want to emphasize the ambiguity of this moment. Unfortunately, the the how do you call it? The main tone of the series is this kind of a resigned wisdom. You know, we are fighting our small fights. Ultimately, we lose. The same cynical circle of life goes on. But what can we do? We have to go on fighting, even if we know that we will lose. You know, this kind of a, as they say, stepping back from your naive ethical engagement to this attitude of wisdom. How, again, it's all part of the great circle of life, and so on and so on. Is this the ultimate uh, horizon? I claim no. What I claim is that we should take here, now don't kill me for saying this, we should take here the lesson from our great enemy and apply it to us, to the radical cause. The great enemy is, of course, my beloved Ayn Rand. You know, Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged. What is, nonetheless, there is a correct insight in Atlas Shrugged, you know, the crazy idea, capitalists go on strike, and so on, and so on. The correct idea is this one. You know what's the structure of Atlas Shrugged? You have the second-handers, the non-creative people, the crowd, and the prime movers, the creative capitalists, and so on. And then uh, the, the heroine of the novel, Dagny something, the big railway owner, he fights this terrible Roosevelt Obama style uh, in the movie that they did now of Atlas Rakwan, is clearly Obama, state bureaucracy. He desperately tries to keep things running against this eternal bureaucratic uh, welfare state obstacles from, uh, from uh, Washington and so on. And then this guy, you know who is John Gold, the ultimate hero, appears to her and basically gives her a lesson. He says, no, the true enemy of progress, which means good capitalism, egotistic, and so on, are not the second-handers, the inner people. It's you. It's you who still try to keep things running, fighting the inertia of the system. He says that you are keeping, you should break down, you should go on strike, and everything will collapse. Don't, okay, I think that False as it is, of course, I don't agree with Ayn Rand version, but aren't, don't, do we not need, in order to even see the perspective of a more radical social change, I claim it's easy to condemn this surrendering to the absolute moment of, oh, it's one circle of life. Yeah, but we have to go through that point to get, if you excuse me for using this traditional terminology, to get out of the limitations of social democratic reformism. For example, now, with European Union, you know, it's what we should avoid is to worry other people's worries, how should I put it, you know, oh my God, will Euro survive? Oh my God, Again, here I agree with Kostas and others. Oh my God, Greece, how will the Greeks pay the debt? Should we help, you know, this, no, 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 Greeks should be our worry in solidarity with them. But the whole problem is false. We shouldn't approach it in this way, which is always how to keep the system basically functioning. Of course, I'm not saying we should just sit back and 
watch everything falling apart. We should very, very well, totally for people starving, jobless, and so on. But we should avoid the trick of imperceptibly translating this type of worry into how nonetheless to keep the system going. You know, all the approach to the crisis is like this. It's basically, what is for me the German scene? Not just their racist attitude towards Greek and so on, but this automatic premise, save the euro, euro, save the financial system. But my God, what is if exactly in the same way, sorry for the obscenity, as in Ayn Rand novels, what is precisely this worry is a false worry. What if you should accept that in a way when you get this insight, this wisdom, our faith, that uh, the only way, the only radical change, it's not the change within faith. Faith itself can be changed. Faith means here the entire system. And that you have to go through this point of, let's call it, zero level. And then opt for a more radical change. At some point, the, the truly subversive thing is not to worry other people's false worries. It's not our problem, will the European bank survive, and so on. It's not our problem. Euro can be a good thing, but as part of what project? Definitely not as part of the what is Europe now project. Or to give you another political example, I was shocked. This is for me the ultimate obscenity political of our moment. Did you notice something strange about Hungary? How? Okay, it's now fashionable to criticize Hungary, this nationalist, almost proto-fascist government, uh, uh, you know, doing all the crazy things, an incredibly harsh uh, law controlling the press, whatever you want, and so on. But then, in the series of these reproaches to Hungary, there is another reproach which is not so self-evident. It is, and it reminds me, you know, that famous phrase of Marx, uh, uh, ironically, when he says capitalism is freedom, equality, and bentham, general bentham. It's uh, basically what Western Europe reproaches to Hungary is against uh, Press, uh, sorry, uh, uh, freedom of the press, legal system controlled by political party, blah blah, and and uh, and uh, cancelling the independence of the national bank. All of so the obscenity is as if the the thing which is no less even which is absolutely not even economically self-evident. The idea that the central state bank should be independent and so on. If anything, the lesson of latest capitalist crisis is that it's even in the interest of capitalism to have the state to have the state regulate the bank. This is why, incidentally, China and Singapore survived the present crisis much better than we in the West, because contrary to your great Gordon Brown, they precisely reestablished the state control of the bank. It worked triumphantly. So. Uh, isn't this the strange obscenity where some typical neoliberal yes, I believe it, measure like giving the banks independence to technocrats all of a sudden is put into the same series as, you know, freedom of the press and all that, all that. This is an obscenity. Here, 
this is European ideology today at its most dangerous. So again, my lesson here is that uh, in a way, if we, this is maybe the non-intended lesson of the wire, that this conclusion does not mean simply, okay, let's go home, in the sense of we did our heroic duty, nothing can be changed, the life cycle goes on. No, the lesson is just that if you fight within the existing faith, that should say global system, of course, the ending is always the one like this. But there is a chance to change faith itself. And to do this, you should precisely not worry the other, peop other peop people's worries. Don't accept the premise of now, oh my God, outside euro, outside, I don't know, our banks, there is total catastrophe. No, it's not the total catastrophe. <laughs> we have to go through that risk of allowing the system up to a point to self-destroy itself to start something new. Otherwise, on behalf of saving the system, we will just go deeper in. Of allowing the system up to a point to self-destroy itself to start something new. Otherwise, on behalf of saving the system, we will just go deeper and deeper. So it's an open ending, it's much more ambiguous, I claim. I'm sorry if I was too long, but, uh, too long, but it's in my nature. Thanks very much. <laughs> Now we have 13 minutes for democracy.